Okay. Hello, my name is Cassie Prolongo, and I'm a science communicator with the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute at NASA Ames. And today I'm speaking with David Smith, um, who I work with at NASA Ames. So, David, could you tell me a little bit about your job title and a little bit about what you do at NASA? Hi, Cassie. I'm a microbiologist at NASA. I don't think that's my official job title. We get weird job titles from the Office of Personnel Management and Government. I don't even know 13 years in what my real title is, but I'm a scientist. Most of what I do is in microbiology and I've had some uh, science management in recent years as well at NASA Ames. So uh, the kind of microbiology I'm interested in is related to how microbes really small life that you can't see usually with your eyeball um, gets dispersed in nature. So we use the Earth's atmosphere as a place to explore the extent of that dispersal uh, for microbes that get swept up into high altitudes by strong storms and winds blowing. Uh, we use the atmosphere as a place to explore the limits of life here on Earth and uh, potentially elsewhere in the solar system and beyond um, as we look at life that can withstand really extreme environments. We learn a little bit about um, what life can do and how it adapts. And uh, we use Earth and certain environments on Earth as a place to kind of inform how we're going to conduct research for life elsewhere in the solar system and beyond. So that's what I do. And uh, I love it. Yeah. So. Before I really delve into a little bit with your research, I'm always curious about people's journeys of how they got to where they are. How did you know that you wanted to be a scientist? Was there a particular moment in your life which was the spark for it, or was it sort of an accumulation of things uh, that you had that had, had happened? Yeah, I think I stumbled into it, to be honest. I was always interested in science because I had great teachers. Uh, so I always was, you know, wide awake and wide-eyed and on the edge of my seat uh, in grade school whenever the subject came up. Uh, loved astronomy and biology. Grew to like chemistry and physics. It, those never really came naturally to me in grade school, but I still, I liked the process of working towards um, explanations for how the world works. And, um, the scientific method in general, because you know, even as a kid, I was always asking questions. So, mm -hmm. the permission to continue asking questions uh, always appealed to me for sure. But uh, you know, even to this day, I think I still have a little bit of imposter syndrome, where like, mm -hmm. am I a scientist? Like, what is a scientist? <laughs> uh, so it's weird for me to think about. You know, did I purposefully pursue the the career? Um, I don't think I ever did. I just I always really enjoyed um, framing investigations and going out into the field to do work. And um, the collaborative nature of science is fabulous. I think that's probably looking back what I, I appreciate most, other than describing uh, what's happening in nature, uh, getting to work with the people that I've partnered with, or um, really when you're doing scientific investigations, it's it gets so intense sometimes and the kinds of relationships that you establish in the process of writing or analyzing data once once you're past that and you've published something like it's 
it's almost forever. I, I don't I hesitate to use that word, you know, digitally forever, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, it's a nice way of capturing um, a moment in your life that you've shared with other people and, and working on something that's bigger than yourself. I, lo I love all of those. I love those scientists. It's interesting that you talk about that because those are things talking to other scientists that I hear repeatedly, and I think it's important to stress that idea of collaboration. Research cannot happen in isolation, um, which yeah. is especially challenging, I suppose, in this time of uh, we are sort of isolated, but we're also collaborating, but also having this natural drive towards curiosity. It's interesting that you remark about imposter syndrome because that's something I think a lot of people struggle with. And you you kind of alluded to the fact that you might still also be uh, a little bit with imposter syndrome. How do you how did you get past sort of that mentality that you are you are good enough to be doing science um, just for other people who might be struggling with maybe thinking they can't do it. Yeah, right. It, it's definitely something that is uh, a moving target. I don't feel ever like I've arrived, you know, as a subject matter expert. Um, but I think sort of the humility can actually be empowering in a lot of ways because that, that fear or anxiety, the right amount is motivating to me to find really sharp people to work with. So when uh, I think back on the projects and papers uh, and proposals that I've been uh, working on throughout my career, I've always tried to bring in the, the, the type of talent and the brain power that I see lacking in myself. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it, it can actually be really beneficial in the right way of balancing out um, what you need on a team. Um, the, the kinds of science that I'm interested in um, exploring, it's always uh, interdisciplinary work too. So like, there's just no way I can be... Uh, knowledgeable or an expert in all of the pieces of an investigation that I want to put together. There's just no way, at least in my brain. Mm -hmm. I know my limits. And so, yeah, I think it has been motivating that sort of, uh, uh, that, that nervousness I use to try and round out a really good team of people that are better than me and smarter than me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and you just got to get over it, I guess, when you're in front of the room and presenting results, it's like, uh, this is what we think's going on. Uh, we're not sure, prove us wrong. I mean, that's, that's kind of science anyway. So it's like, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have to declare uh, myself as an expert or my, my data as uh, perfect because uh, I have my limits and our data sets are surely limited too, but that's fine. You know, we're putting it out there and we're hoping people do follow on investigations and we're hoping people challenge our, our results because that's how, that's how we learn and that's how we get better in any uh investigation so I've, I've tried to frame it in that way where it's like yeah my uncertainty about myself and my own limits is actually part of the scientific process and it's totally fine applying the scientific method to imposter syndrome has to be the most unique thing that i've heard so far um and that's something i think it could be really applicable and perhaps help people as they're starting out their journey thinking, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, that maybe applying it as a process could actually help them to overcome. So that's a really unique take. I appreciate you talking about that. Um, I want to talk a little bit also about your journey through NASA. I mean, it's so it's so interesting and it's, it's just, it's super varied. Um, you started out at Kennedy, you're now at Ames, um, but you're also on detail to headquarters. Um, 
we're all working remotely, obviously, but you're on detail with headquarters. So how has this transition been? Because each of the different, what, what people may not be aware of is that each of the different centers have different research uh, capacities, capabilities that they really specialize in. And has it really affected the different types of research that you do working sort of at these different centers and now that you're at headquarters? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been really fortunate to be able to experience different elements of uh, the agency. And, you know, I think there is a, a thread that sort of links my, my three experiences uh, from the field centers. You mentioned Kennedy Games and now headquarters. I'll, I'll get to that maybe in a minute. But, you know, going back to where I started at Kennedy, I, I, I landed uh, there at a time where the space shuttle program was still flying. And that was such a huge motivation to me. Um, initially, even when I was much younger, watching space shuttle launches and about the history of human spaceflight. So to be able to uh, start my career when the space shuttle program was still operational and launching routinely at Kennedy was mind-blowing, to say the least. I mean, I, I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. Uh, so I was really fortunate. It was like it was working somewhere that was it was living history, you know. And I knew it because the space shuttle program was um, about to phase out, and so I was just I was very much in the moment and um, in disbelief that I was part of the NASA team. Uh, and you know, Kennedy Space Center is largely an operational center with uh, engineers. And so, again, going back to how did I get there? I, I was like, wow, uh, what am I doing, <laughs> and how do I help? Uh, but you know, like anybody early in their career, you know, I, I just I tried to plug in where I was needed, and uh, thankfully there was a good group of uh, biologists that um, had been at Kennedy for years preparing experiments that were going to fly to space or had just returned from space, and so all of the infrastructure for life sciences was on the ground there, and um, I was able to plug into some labs and learn a lot about how to do science uh, both on the ground and in space, and uh, really, I guess, gained a lot of appreciation for how complicated it is to, to fly experiments in a controlled manner uh, when you have to package them with so many constraints. Uh, we, we launched them off of this planet. So that was, that was a very eye-opening experience. And um, as you mentioned, I stayed at Kennedy for six or seven years. And uh, while I was there, you know, started some um, new projects with engineers that were just outstanding. I shouldn't use the past tense, are outstanding. Uh, you know, I'm still working with Kennedy Space Center engineers on uh, various uh, investigations that fly using NASA aircraft and NASA balloons. And um, the part of the thread that, that I want to link across Kennedy and Ames and even headquarters is like, you know, I, I, I was hesitant at first uh, when I was at Kennedy Space Center about, you know, starting new projects and designing new payloads for doing science. And I, I was so shocked that the leadership team at Kennedy was like, go for it. Yeah, that's what you're here for. Just do it. I didn't expect that at all. Um, and so, you know, like anything, it took a few years to actually gain traction on designing some new payloads. And um, we were finally able to get things built and flown. And um, that's about when I jumped over to Ames Research Center, um, kept the bridges intact with Kennedy Space Center engineers and, and sort of built up my own laboratory of microbiology at Ames. 
um, kind of had the same hesitation when it came to plugging into the kinds of biology happening today. It's kind of, you know, where do you need me? I had the same attitude, started getting involved in um, space station studies, but also, you know, kind of told the Ames leadership team, hey, we got these cool things that we can fly on large NASA balloons. And, oh, there's this other thing I want to try on the NASA aircraft. Would that be okay? And again, the answer was like, yeah, do it. Uh, and again, totally surprised with that uh, attitude. And um, and I'm seeing the same sort of uh, unapologetic support for trying new stuff at headquarters, which is the linkage that I wanted to, to describe in my three experiences across the agency, um, where it's kind of, it's an unwritten rule and people in leadership positions are all following it. It's like the workforce is empowered to try stuff that's new and to explore. And that may not work. And I have personally experienced that as an employee, uh, as a, a really new engineer at Kennedy Space Center and scientist at Ames and um, eventually as a principal investigator and project scientist. It's like the permission to try stuff even if it doesn't work, has been the reality of my experience in the agency. And that for that, I am incredibly grateful. It, it makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing, doing the right kind of work in the right place. Because uh, I think that throughout this up, Cassie, like, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a real need for that uh, in the federal government to try fundamental research and tough exploration that may not pan out. And uh, and that's what NASA should be doing. And I'm really proud to say that uh, in a few instances, it's worked out really well for the kinds of science that I'm interested in doing. Uh, and I, I would encourage anybody that's listening to this and wants to try risky things that can um, change again to, to consider being a scientist in government. It's interesting. Because, you know, a lot of people knock, a lot of people knock how slow things can be in a big bureaucracy. To some extent, that's true. But on the other side of the coin, you can try stuff yeah. that may take five or 10 years or more. I mean, you look at some of the most successful things that have come out of uh, NASA Ames Research Center. Um, the Kepler mission, for instance. You know, talk about a case study of persistence and risk and, um, you know, floating something that at the, at the time was just like dismissed as totally crazy. Mm -hmm. And then decades later is flying and detecting tens of thousands of exoplanets and rewriting textbooks. Uh, yeah, that's what government science is all about. And, uh, and I've seen that, I've seen that in my experience in uh, the agency. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I'm proud to be a part of it is what I want to say. It's interesting because you actually just read my mind a bit. <laughs> um, I was going to bring up Kepler as like a, a it's a very risky sort of endeavor. Um, when people often think of NASA, and I don't mean to speak for people, but oftentimes there is a sort of calculated risk that people, uh, you know, going into NASA, you always want to have the precautions. We're very cautious. Value, you want to protect human life. You want to protect property. Um, so now that we're, but people forget that these risky things happen, like Kepler. Kepler was a huge success. Now that we're going down this thing of expanding astrobiology, it's really encouraging to hear you say things that 
let's give it a go. Let's try it out and see what happens. Um, and that kind of leads me to my other question then, where the research that you're currently working on, what is it that you're really excited about right now? I mean, it sounds like being able to have these opportunities is super exciting, but is there anything in particular that you're just you're really thrilled to be working on? Yeah, the, the upper atmosphere exploration to me is is so fascinating. Um, have you seen the, uh, the Pixar film Up? Yes. You know, uh, that's, that's what I do. I put instruments on big balloons that uh, float above most of Earth's atmosphere. And uh, not only is the vantage point spectacular, and we get the imagery back, uh, but we can do really interesting science there. Uh, and it, and it, we can also reach uh, high altitudes on NASA aircraft. Uh, the balloons take us to a place that's very Mars-like, and that's why I'm, I'm so interested in that environment, because, you know, Mar Mars-like conditions are just overhead. Imagine yourself leaving the surface and moving upwards through the column of air. Eventually, you're going to get it above 99% of Earth's atmosphere where balloons float, and the radiation and the temperatures and the pressure are all very much like what you would expect if you were walking on the surface of Mars. And the fact that it's just that close, when we launch a balloon, it gets there in about an hour, uh, to me is thrilling that we can put experiments and instruments in an environment that's like the red planet and it's that close. It's just overhead. I often say that we are bottom dwellers underneath an ocean of air. It's easy to forget about it, how much air is above your head at any given moment. Uh, and we just get used to it. But, you know, the conditions of space are not that far away. And you're putting these biological payloads, essentially, on, because you were part of the NASA balloon program. Um, I've flown I flo with the NASA balloon program, and that's exactly what we put payloads or instruments, sometimes with uh, microbiology mm -hmm. uh, up in that environment for anywhere from hours to days. We flew a mission recently in Antarctica that lasted 32 days at that altitude. Wow. And then the, uh, the payload returns to the ground and eventually comes back to the lab and we see how things responded to that extreme environment that inform our search for life uh, in the universe and the, the limits of life as we know it here on this planet. So that's why- So yeah, I, 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 find that, I find that really exciting, just the accessibility of the near space environment. And, uh, I've been really proud of uh, seeing sort of a, a big wave of interest in the life science community of using the upper atmosphere as a proving ground for understanding how biology responds to uh, extreme radiation conditions. Wow. It's an important part of our uh, collective goal to uh, have sustainable human exploration, either on the moon or on Mars. We gotta figure out this radiation problem and how biology responds to radiation. And I, we can use the upper atmosphere um, to help inform that that pursuit. So you're collecting these bioaerosols essentially, and then you're comparing them to conditions here on Earth. Is that basically it, or am I misunderstanding that? Right. So I, I mentioned that uh, my team is using NASA balloons and NASA aircraft, and we use the aircraft to do some collections that you were just describing mm -hmm. of microbes that are aerosolized or bioaerosols. Um, and with those missions, we don't fly as high as balloons do, but we fly uh, really high, nevertheless, uh, you know, higher than a commercial airliner. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and we make these collections of kind of what gets naturally dispersed in that environment. And we try and detect what's there, and what fraction of what's there is still alive. And uh, with the balloons, we have a different approach. We're not making collections, but we're actually loading microbes into our containers along with other instruments that measure environmental conditions. And we're putting them in an extreme environment to see how they change. Mm. So it's an exposure experiment as opposed to a, a collection experiment, which is what we use NASA Airport. Hmm. Well, that's fascinating. I can't wait to see how things are going to shape up. And I can tell that you're really excited about it because your face lights up when you start talking about it. You're definitely very excited about how this research is going to go. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. And I'm curious about one of the things being sort of, uh, even though you have been at Kennedy and Ames and you're at headquarters, you're still kind of, I would say you're considered quote unquote early career. And one of the things that drew me to wanting to chat with you is that you also started this AIMS Early Career Network for new hires, um, and you worked with center management to be able to do that. Why, why do you think that this is important to have this linkage for early career people? Um, what sort of benefits can they get out of it? Right. Uh, I, I've always been fascinated by the history of this agency, history of science in general, um, and uh, you know, you hear often that like the average age in mission control during the Apollo missions was like 26, 27. Uh, when this agency was young, we empowered a lot of people that were what we would call now early career. I'm sure the term didn't exist back then. Uh, and, you know, even like the Mercury 7 astronauts were in their early 30s for the most part. Um, so, you know, in terms of the history of the, the really big achievements, uh, the agency's always tapped into early career talent. Uh, and I think it's an important piece of diversity and inclusion, uh, having fresh perspectives. You know, when I say early career, it doesn't necessarily mean somebody that's young in age. It's just, you know, maybe uh, people that are new to a certain type of profession, or it can be somebody that's fresh out of, of school. Um, it can be both. It's more about just like taking a fresh look at how we do things. And uh, I think that's really important for creativity and why it's an, an, it's an essential piece of progress, uh, not just at SAMES, but in general. Uh, we, when we're trying new stuff, to go back to the earlier discussion, uh, I think all of us have a tendency to just fall back on what's familiar, what's comfortable, and um, making sure that we get fresh perspectives and people that challenge ideas is so uh, important to keep us moving forward. And I think that the, the early career workforce can offer all of that. So when I came to Ames and I saw that there wasn't sort of uh, a structured way of defining that cohort, I wanted I wanted to help bring people together uh, in a way where not just for like you know making better mission outcomes, but also just fellowship and uh, you know getting to share collective experiences over coffee or other beverages. You know, I think that's an important part of science too. When you kind of um, walk away from your laboratory bench or your computer screen and you just like talk with people and and I, I found that um, sometimes it's easier to talk with people that have uh, experiences 
that are uh, like your own, but also, you know, different in the sense that like, what am I trying to say, Cassie? There's a few, there's a few less barriers to open conversations when uh, you're across the table from somebody that is still sort of like trying to figure it out, as opposed to like walking down the hall in your building and somebody that's been in the agency for like 30 years, you know, that's great too. They have a lot to offer and teach us, but it's also, it can be a little bit intimidating to like have the same open conversations with people that know so much. And so I, I, I found that like getting the early career people together helped with sort of just like bouncing ideas more openly off one another and sort of leaning on one another to try and understand our place in the agency. And, you know, I think Ames Management saw, saw that um, there was a need for it too. Um, I, I would say just in closing to like, to acknowledge that, you know, generationally speaking, there's a big change coming up uh, across the government, but especially at NASA Ames, where it's like a lot of very experienced people who have so much knowledge will be um, retiring in the coming years. And, you know, we need to figure out ways to to learn from them and to capture what they know before um, they move on. So we took, we use the term succession planning and management, which I can't stand. But, you know, the point is like, we have to facilitate a way of uh, talking across generations in order to um, ensure that we retain all of this expertise and um, knowledge. Yeah. And I just didn't see a way of doing that. So I was like, all right, Build my let's, own. Form a net, let's form a network. Have you found it? Let's bring, let's bring in PIs and managers and leaders that haven't talked to the people that are new in their um, assignments and aims and just like have a place for that conversation. Yeah. Because it can be scary just walking into somebody's office. Absolutely. And speaking of which, um, we're in a time where we're having to work remotely. Um, have you found it challenging in certain ways that although we have technology, you and I are speaking computer to computer right now. Um, have you found it challenging just to, you know, either having collaborative talks, not necessarily with research, but just collaborative talks with your fellow researchers, um, you know, that you could do off the cuff when you're normally sitting amongst, you know, like you said, putting stuff down, asking somebody across the lab bench. Um, has that been a challenge? You know, I feel more connected. How so? I think that there's a real collective craving for um, seeing people, even if it's on a computer screen. And when I think back at what the lab dynamic was like before all of this started, you know, people were a little bit more swept up in the checklist of stuff they needed to do that day. And like within your very regional orbit, you would see people and talk to them like, you know, you know, the, the normal, nice uh, communications that you would expect face-to-face and you know, all the associated benefits of that. But, like, you would also just sort of, you would get into your routine. At least I would. You kind of walk the same patterns and see the same people at the cafeteria. Uh, whereas now it's like, in a way, even though the meetings are more virtual, um, it's putting me... Uh, on the screen with people that I didn't know as well before all of this started, particularly in the management team uh, at NASA Ames. And for that, I'm really grateful. I feel much more connected to people than I did before when we were just, we were just so busy to the point where 
it was a little bit harder to get to know people. Um, whereas now it's like, I think people, people want to uh, open up a little bit more now, maybe because it's harder to do so virtually and on a computer screen. So I, I do feel like I'm getting insights that I didn't have before about my colleagues. So I'm grateful for that. So it's interesting. It's presented an opportunity um, because we've had to reshift our mindset on how we conduct certain things. From what I'm hearing from you, it sounds like it's, it's a different opportunity for connections and for talking, um, communicating with people, different types of people. Very much so. And uh, I feel like uh, it, it has had a unifying effect to a great extent in the science director at Ames. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think we can't possibly know what the consequences of that will be yet. But you know, maybe five, 10 years from now, we'll look back and realize how many COVID uh, era collaborations were emerging during this period, uh, scientific and otherwise. So I want to, since we're talking about communications, there's a few communications questions I, I wanted to chat sure. about. Um, you're an incredibly strong supporter for science communication. I would consider you an advocate and an ally, um, absolutely somebody who likes to conduct or at least is engagement, engaging with outreach um, given the opportunity. Why do you think that it's important for scientists to be communicators or to at least learn how to communicate? It is incredibly important. Uh, and, you know, it, it's important not only because the American taxpayer puts the bill of what we're doing and they deserve to know and be a part of uh, the process and, and, and realize the outcomes of their investment uh, in basic research and exploration. But I think all of us crave stories. I think that's like, it's a very core part of the human condition. And uh, I think the best science, even in the most technical journals, has a story to tell. Sometimes a little hard to decipher that story, but uh, there, there is a story in, the, the pursuit of uh, asking a question, investigating it, and discussing it. And um, the better that comes across, uh, the easier it is to convey, not only to the public, what you're doing as a scientist, but uh, the people that make decisions about what should be done next, right? So there's a selfish way of looking at it. As a scientist, the more you refine your communications to the general public, Easier it is to also have conversations with people within the agency and across the government that are continuing to think about the kinds of science that should be done. Um, so in, in that sense, refining science communication is also useful when you're writing a proposal. At least it has been for me. And I also think that uh, it forces you, uh, if you're a principal investigator or a scientist, it forces you to think about the real fundamental pieces of what you were doing. So it, it causes me to reflect on what was this all about, right? Because when it's so close to you, after years of pursuing a, a question or, or um, analyzing something, forces you to really back way off and look at it and frame it in uh, context and just 
uh, for, I always find that very satisfying at the end of something that I've been tackling for, for a very long period of time is the ability to just back away, frame, well, what the heck did we just do? <laughs> and to talk about it in a way that makes sense uh, to the public at large. And I think in, in doing that, and that usually occurs, at, you know, once you publish something, in doing that, um, it brings about a tremendous satisfaction, uh, a way of just kind of tying a bow on something that you really poured yourself into for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful that NASA has as many science communicators as we do have. I, I, I consider it, uh, and I mean this, Cassie, I consider it an essential part of being uh, a scientist at NASA is engaging with our science communication staff and uh, helping bring about public awareness of what we're working on. It's not an inconvenience. It's not. Um, it's not annoying. It's essential and beneficial and meaningful. I love it. And essentially and, empowering these scientists too, so that they can conduct their own science communication. Certainly, it's good that we're intermediaries, but there's a certain level of empowerment that I feel scientists should feel empowered to also. Feel free to disagree, but to also conduct their own communications, like you said, crafting stories, learning how to craft stories of their science so that they can talk to broad audiences, um, I think is critical. Yeah, I mean, shout out to science writers, science communicators. I've been fortunate enough to uh, have, I mean, almost exclusively good stories written up about some of our research results. And in the process of talking with journalists, you will sometimes end up reading a piece where they understand your science better than you do. And I, I've read stories like that where I I was blown away uh, at the way the journalist was able to frame what we were working on and why it mattered. Uh, to the point where I'm like, can I have this person on my next research proposal? Like, that was so clear. Uh, so, you know, I'm constantly learning uh, about how to distill messages and how to make it um, more accessible for people who deserve to talk. And I I just think to end on a note where I'm sure you will agree, I just think it's so important that we have more um, science stories in the public sphere and get people excited about um, discovery. Because I think, you know, we're a curious species and people really do get excited about what NASA's on and they should be and uh, the brand is strong and we need to keep feeding the curiosity of the general public um, so I think that's that's definitely one of the most satisfying things about being a scientist in this agency is getting to contribute to that larger story of all the things we're working on and, and getting the public interested and, and you know to me I, 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 I get a lot of energy from the public's excitement so I just see Science communications as a healthy part of uh, injecting oxygen into what's already there, which is you know, overwhelming support of mm-hmm. what this agency does in the United States. I think that's really positive, and it's encouraging to see more scientists thinking this way. Especially, I know it can be very challenging for because it's almost like another thing to do is to communicate, but 
if there's any ways that we can make things easier, I mean, in, in time, that's sort of what we're trying to do is make things easier and just try to get the information out there as accurate, as timely as possible. Um, but sometimes that comes into challenges too when you're trying to do things quickly. And have you, in either your personal experience or in any other capacity, are there any examples that you see um, either in research that you wish maybe people under, understood more or any things that have happened and uh, the journalists perhaps have accidentally said something that you were like, gosh, I wish they didn't say it in that way. You know, I mean, things do happen. People are on, on you know, they're, they're trying to get things out quickly. Um, but any examples that you can think of that you wish that you could clarify at the time? Hey, I mean, scientists are flawed. Journalists can be flawed. People are flawed. You know, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to be critical of anything I've seen uh, related to my own research results. Uh, you know, there's a tendency, I think, in this era to just, like, come up with really flashy headlines so people click. Uh, I, I've noticed a lot of stories that don't reflect the, the headline. I get it. It's fine. I'm trying to rise to the top of uh, <laughs> search returns online. It's fine. Uh, you know, I think uh, any coverage of science is good coverage of science. Hopefully it's not too sensational, but if it is, but fine, you know, creates a dialogue, maybe inspires somebody to publish something that totally overturns the sensational headline. <laughs> totally fine. I think just having discourse is what, what matters in this age in, in particular, uh, where science is uh, clearly still a powerful part of our lives, uh, both as a motivator and a source of inspiration, but all, you know, as a is a benefit to humanity and um, creating, you know, things that we need in our everyday lives. I think now more than ever, people realize the the place for science as we collectively pursue a vaccine for COVID. Um, and so, you know, I think just having science in the forefront of people's collective brains in this country and globally is so important. And we need to do a better job, all of us, of celebrating scientists. Um, because it's it's a calling in a lot of ways, you know, and I I would say I would say this pandemic has certainly been able to shine a light on a lot of other professions that have been under celebrated, right? Healthcare professionals, professionals, teachers. Uh, so it's so good that I think a lot of us are finally recognizing those contributions to society, and maybe science is part of that now too, where uh, more students will be inspired to go um, work in the lab someday 15 20 years down the line because uh, when that cure comes out and it will uh, for covid i i think it will inspire a lot of people to become a scientist and make the world a better place not just for public health but for all the other things we want to do in science so. yeah couldn't have ended on a better note that's that's great um, love it. Thank you so much for your time, your contributions, and for your fascinating research. I can't wait to read and communicate more about it. Thanks, David. Thanks for what you do, Cassie. It was really fun talking.